The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we go to God's word this morning, let's ask his guidance through prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study your word, to reflect upon these eternal truths that you have revealed to us, that we may dig into the text, that we may understand how these things apply to us, even though they were written to others in a different time, in a different circumstance. Father, we pray that we might be receptive to the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we might not operate in an arrogance and resistance to his teaching, but that in humility we would receive the word embedded, which is able to give real life to our soul. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, we're down to verse 2, is a letter of evaluation to one of the congregations that is in a, has been in a state of spiritual collapse and failure for some time. They are yet, nevertheless, a congregation that is made up of believers. Don't get trapped into this kind of lordship salvation mentality that uh, the way you know somebody's a Christian is by their fruits. They misquote the text dealing with the false teachers and prophets and the Pharisees back in Matthew, by your fruits they shall know you. Fruits there has to do with the overt teaching and what was being said. And if what is taught, what is said, the doctrine that is communicated is false, then you know that the teacher, the prophet, the religious expositor is teaching wrong things and is false. That's how that should be applied. It's not to be applied in the realm of evaluating believers' lives. We're not called to be fruit inspectors. We are to encourage one another. And there are believers who are going to fail and fail miserably in this life. And there are some who are going to uh, trust the Lord at a young age and get distracted along the way by the cares and circumstances of life. And their life will take on the characteristics of an unbeliever. And that becomes evident from a number of passages in Scripture. And that was what was happening in this congregation. They had a reputation for being alive, they were living on past uh, glories in many ways because at one time they were a, a rich, vibrant congregation. They were believers, and then at some point they became complacent. They were taking their spiritual life for granted, the teaching of the Word for granted, and the individuals within the congregation were no longer making the study, the application of the word a priority, and so a dry rot, a spiritual dry rot, had entered into the congregation, and there was no longer this vibrant spiritual reality there. But nevertheless, externally, they were still doing all the same things. They were singing the same hymns, they were showing up for their meetings, and they were 
having fellowship together, but there was no spiritual reality. The ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, had been quenched and shut down, and so sanctification was not taking place. In fact, they were in a process of reversing course in their spiritual life, and they had lost much of the ground that they had gained. In fact, if you've been keeping up with the Thursday night study in Hebrews, there's a certain parallel here between the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews and how uh, the writer addresses them in Hebrews chapter 5, 11 and following as having become lazy or sluggish and that at one time they had advanced to a certain level, but now they needed to be taught milk again, that whereas they by now they should be teachers. Uh, he says that uh, in contrast, you should uh, have to go back and teach you milk, teach you the elementary principles again, because what happens is as we advance in our spiritual life and spiritual growth takes place and we uh, pursue spiritual maturity, we can become uh, lax. We can rest on our laurels. We can become... Uh, secure in our present condition, which I think that we can just relax, and it's a false security. This was the same kind of thing that had happened, of course, historically to the people in Sardis, is because of their fortress position, as we saw last week, high on that escarpment, surrounded on three sides by steep cliffs, and the only access was one narrow winding road coming in from the south, that they had felt that no army could ever take them. And on two different occasions, once under Cyrus and later on, later on under Antiochus, they were surprised because the enemy forces sent in uh, mountain climbers who were able to scale those cliffs and enter into the city and take it. And that was the, a picture of the same problem that we can get into in the spiritual life, that our sin nature... And Satan have ways of of inserting these these uh, covert teams that slip into our thinking, that slip into our spiritual life, and they put minefields everywhere. And then all of a sudden, one day, uh, we start walking in the minefields, and our spiritual life just uh, deteriorates. It's already been that way, but the house of cards that we built finally uh, comes apart. Revelation 3.1 states to the angel, that is the angel who is the court record keeper in heaven, who is keeping track of these evaluations and will uh, utilize those within the general structure of the angelic conflict in heaven in, in terms of the uh, evaluation judgment that we face at the Bema Seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. This angel is keeping a record of the successes and failures of each congregation. To the angel of the church in Sardis, this is the church located about 50 miles to the northeast of Ephesus, and we've studied this already in the past, and he is to write, these things says, and then we have a, after we have the address, we have a uh, character reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, as I pointed out, going back to that image, that vision, that the Apostle John saw while he was on the Isle of Patmos when the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him in this uh, overwhelming vision where he has his, his hair is white, 
His whole appearance is that is bright and stunning, and it is he is dressed in robes down to his feet, girded with a gold band. It is the the dress, the comportment, the picture of someone who is a judge who is coming to stand in judgment. And the picture is that he has the seven spirits of God, and we saw last night last time that that imagery is based on Zechariah chapter four. And it ties into other references in the book of Revelation to the seven spirits. And this indicates the fullness of the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And the fact that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who holds the seven spirits indicates that he is the one who provides the spiritual power to the church in the church age. And the power to live the Christian life in the church age comes from the Holy Spirit. It is not a system of just morality. That's what you'll get in almost every congregation and every church that you go to today is nothing more than teaching morality. Now, it's fine to be moral. In many ways, it's better to be moral than immoral. But the Pharisees were moral people. And you can be a moral degenerate just like you can be an immoral degenerate. The issue in the Christian life is not simply changing your life to follow a nice, respectable system of ethics or morality. It is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with God the Father that is based upon the internal energizing ministry of God the Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural walk with the Holy Spirit that provides the dynamics for our spiritual growth. And when that principle is lost, then what happens is the church deteriorates into nothing more than one other a group of people teaching simple morality. And where that has an application, that is not what the church is all about. You see a, a parallel with Christian, so-called Christian psychology today and its popularity. I remember getting in a conversation some years ago with an individual, and they said, well, what's wrong with that? It, 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 what's wrong with Christian psychology? It makes people who are dysfunctional functional, at least they're able to accomplish things in their life. I said, yeah, but what you're doing is you're teaching them that the techniques that make them functional are not biblical techniques dependent upon God the Holy Spirit, reliant upon His Scripture exclusively, and they think they can live that life and achieve stability and happiness and harmony apart from what God says to do in His Word. And I always remember a statement made by Dr. J. Adams who taught at the uh, Westminster Theological Seminary for many years and then he went to some of their other campuses and he taught a classic work on biblical counseling back in the 70s called Competent to Counsel. But years later in the late 80s he wrote a book on self-image and it was a devastating critique of the whole concept of self-image. And in there he said, as a minister of the gospel, as a pastor, as someone who is teaching people that the only path to life happiness, stability, and meaning comes from the Word of God, I would rather somebody die muddy, drunk in the streets than to give them the least hope that somehow they can find happiness and stability apart from Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And that sounds like a hard statement, but that's what spiritual life is all about. When we live, if we truly believe we live within God's world and that we are surrounded by this supernatural conflict called the angelic conflict, then the rea realities are if so you are a believer, 
The goal isn't to become functional. The goal is to be spiritually mature so that you can be a witness and participant in spiritual victories in this life as a testimony to the grace and the glory of God. Anything less is failure, and that's what's happened in churches like the one in Sardis and the one we'll see later on in Laodicea. They have become complacent. They have turned their back on the solution for the spiritual life, which is that relationship, that walk, by means of God the Holy Spirit. So the picture here is of Jesus Christ as a judge. He holds in one hand the source, the solution of our problems, which is the Holy Spirit. In the other hand, he is holding the seven stars. These seven stars represent the angels again. Stars are never used to relate to pastors. We saw in Revelation chapter 1 that the stars are the angels of the seven churches. And so by doing that, he's showing that on the one hand, He is the one who is ultimately behind the evaluation of every local church. And on the other hand, he is the one that provides that which is necessary so that we get good marks on our report card. Uh, I know your works, he says, and that is the way each of these evaluation statements begins in the uh, majority text. I know your works. That is, I am intimately acquainted with every aspect of your life. You can't blow any smoke at me. You can't uh, rationalize. You can't claim that you're a victim. Everybody's a victim. Adam sinned. We all died. Uh, We're all victims. Get over it. Let's move forward. And the solution is given with the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, I know, oida, I am intimately acquainted uh, with your works because of my omniscience. You can't hide anything from me. And I know that you have a name that is a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. Reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, many people take this to say that uh, this is spiritual life versus spiritual death. In other words, he is saying that you have a reputation for being a regenerate church, but you're an unregenerate church. Well, this is just a whole, it misses the whole point in these, in these letters. He's addressing believers. And, of course, we have to recognize that in the Scripture there are seven different kinds of death. And so whenever you see death mentioned, you have to decide what kind of death is in view. The first kind of death mentioned in Scripture is spiritual death. This is the death that is indicated as the judicial penalty for sin in Genesis 2.17. When God told Adam, you can eat from the fruit of every tree in the garden. I have given you an overabundance of resources for your, your appetite. You have apples, oranges, you have pomegranates, you have grapes, you have everything. They had things we can't even imagine. They're no longer around today. They, they've become extinct. They had every possible fruit they could enjoy, every flavor, every texture, every appearance. And God said, but there's just one you can't eat. You can do anything. There was only one sin they could commit in the garden. They couldn't become arrogant. They couldn't uh, get involved in sexual immorality. I mean, there wasn't anybody else around. You know, all those things that we think of as the nasty nine or the fearsome five or the terrible two or whatever those big sins are that we think are unforgivable and that that God just, just can't quite handle on the cross weren't available. There was only one. And that had to do with eating a piece of fruit, something that never makes anybody's list of horrible things to do, unless, of course, you're on the Atkins diet. 
Nobody thinks about that, but that was the issue. And he ate that fruit, and what was the penalty? You will die immediately. It's a very strong statement in the Hebrew indicating instant death. Adam didn't die physically for 930 years. So it's not talking about physical death. Physical death isn't mentioned until the end of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 2 talks about spiritual death. That's the first kind of spiritual death. Its reality is indicated later on in the third chapter when after they had eaten, the Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, came to meet with them in the garden, and they ran and hid. See, their separation from God. They not only ran and hid, they tried to solve the problem, uh, because as soon as they sinned, their nakedness was exposed. They tried to solve that problem by creating an apron of fig leaves. That didn't work and was insufficient. Man is always trying to solve his problems through insufficient means. Now, we could look at that and say, well, at some level... Fig leaves covered up the problem, but it was an insufficient covering. That's what Christian psychology usually does, or any form of psychology. It just provides a pseudo-cover-up, and now people feel like they're comfortable in their works. But the works don't count. The works do not provide long-term permanent solutions. So there was a problem of spiritual death, and this is referenced also in passages such as Ephesians 2.1, that we were born dead in our trespasses and sins. So you have this juxtaposition of the idea of being born and being dead. It's not physical death, it is spiritual death. But one of the first and most obvious consequences of spiritual death is physical death. See, because of spiritual death, a spiritual death was like this enormous boulder or that, that dropped in the middle of the lake, and it sent out all of these reverberations, all these shock waves that went through every area of the universe, physical as well as spiritual, and it changed things. And it changed physical realities. And one of the results of spiritual death was physical death. So physical death is our second kind of death in the Scripture. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. The third kind of death mentioned in Scripture is called the second death. And the second death has to do with eternal separation from God, condemnation, uh, living eternity in the lake of fire. This is referenced in Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15. It is the final judgment of the unbeliever where they're cast into the lake of fire forever. I didn't give a reference for physical death, but the last couple of verses of, of Genesis chapter 3 are the first mention of it when God tells Adam, from dust you came to dust you will return. That's the first indication of physical death. So we've seen spiritual death, physical death, the second death, and the fourth is operational death. Operational death. This is when the believer is operating like a spiritually dead person. When the uh, believer is operating like a spiritually dead person. And so James talks about this in James 2.26. Faith without works is dead. It doesn't mean that that person in that section is an unbeliever. He is operationally dead. He is like these believers in uh, Sardis and in Laodicea. He is living a life based on works, based on other elements, but there's no spiritual dynamic there from the Holy Spirit. James 2.26, faith without works, meaning application, 
is dead. It's not doing anything for you. You can have doctrine on the one hand, but if you're not marrying your doctrine to application, then it's not going anywhere. And that is a key issue. We need to understand this is a little background also for our passage, is that in James 1, from about James 1.18 down to 2.21, the issue is first uh, hearing and doing. These are this is a paired concept, and in the thinking of the scripture, anyone who is hearing or listening to the word of God isn't simply there to get his auditory nerves stimulated, to have the vibration to come and sit in in Bible class with people you know where you feel comfortable. You know that's why a lot of folks go to churches and even stay in churches that go into. Uh, heresy or go into uh, regression is because they look around, they see all the folks they know and they're comfortable with, and they really don't have the spiritual courage to get out of the pew and go to a church where they don't know anybody, but where they will be taught the Word of God in a way that can produce uh, spiritual growth. That's a challenging thing for a lot of folks. But Scripture teaches that uh, we are to go someplace where we are taught the Word of God. So uh, faith means application. You, you learn the Word of God, you study the Word of God, but that listening moves towards application. It is hearing and doing. And the doing there isn't Christian service. That Christian service is working in prep school, helping out with the audio, straightening up around the church, uh, all of these different aspects of Christian service, missions, giving, evangelism are all elements of Christian service. But Christian service is an outgrowth or should be an outgrowth of your spiritual growth, your spiritual maturity, where you develop a spiritual capacity for serving in various era, er, er, areas. Uh, hearing and doing has to do with hearing and applying. And in the Bible, hearing without application is considered just a false exercise. It's, it's ridiculous. Why come and fill up your Bible notebooks with different doctrines and go home and put it on the shelf where you never look at it again? We need to study it. We need to learn it. There's nothing wrong with taking notes. There's nothing wrong with having copious amounts of organized notes for future reference in case you ever teach or in case you need to uh, get involved with uh, when you're witnessing to somebody. You need to go back and answer questions. But the key is that we are to learn the doctrine and apply it in our lives so the Holy Spirit produces a life-changing operation. Now, those twin concepts, or those related concepts of faith and hearing are paralleled in the last part of that section with faith and works. Faith is parallel to hearing. What do you hear? You hear doctrine. That is what you believe. What's parallel to that is application or works. And so that is why James says faith without works is dead, just as hearing without doing is dead. It's ineffective. Faith must result in application of that which we believe. And when there is no application, we are operationally dead in our Christian life. Fifth, there is positional death, which is similar to uh, what ha what we have uh, and, and, and at, positional death is what takes place at salvation 
It's a non-experiential thing. By that I mean you don't learn it from experience. It's not something that happens when you believe in Christ where suddenly there's this sort of uh, lightning flash that vibrates through your body thinking that this is uh, you just got identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. But that's what positional death refers to. It's our, at the instant of salvation, the Bible says something happens that is called the baptism or identification by means of God the Holy Spirit. And at that instant, we are identified judicially with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so that his death becomes our death, and that penalty for sin takes place. And in that positional death, there is a break with the power, the tyranny that the sin nature had prior to salvation. So that is operational death where we, excuse me, that is positional death where we are identified with Christ's death on the cross. Then there is sixth, temporal death. Temporal death is similar to operational death. Temporal death is similar to operational death. Operational death has to do with we're just not applying the word, focusing on the operational aspect. Temporal death has to do with that time period when we're out of fellowship, when we're not walking by means of the Holy Spirit, when we are walking in darkness, when we are walking in death. We're not, we're saved, but we're living like the unsaved. Uh, Even though we are children of the light, we're still walking in darkness. Ephesians 5, Paul says, you are children of the light, but walk in the light, implying that they were walking in darkness at times. Temporal death, Romans 8, chapter 6, verses 13, Ephesians 5, uh, 14, various other passages indicate temporal death, including our passage in Revelation 3, 1. So the sixth category of death is temporal death, and the last category of death is sexual death. This is what Adam and Sarah uh, had the inability to produce offspring, barrenness. So sexual death is referenced in Revela- uh, excuse me, Romans 4, 16 to 21, and Hebrews 11, 11 and, uh, 11 and 12. So that's the condition here in, in, in our passage. He's addressing believers... But they are in temporal death. They're in carnality. They are operating like mere men, 1 Corinthians 3 3 talks about, not operating under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, what's the solution? Now, this is where we get into some interesting little exegesis here in the next couple of verses. Uh, Be watchful and strengthen. These are the first two commands that are given here in verse chapter 3, verse 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. Now you see, if they were unbelievers and spiritually dead, they wouldn't have anything that remained because they couldn't have produced anything from just the flesh. Be watchful, strengthen the things which remain. Now that first command there, what we have in our English is be, is the Greek verb genomai in a present middle imperative. It's a deponent verb, which is why it's a middle voice, but it's a present imperative. Now, present just real simple grammar here. Present imperative means this is something that should be an ongoing characteristic, standard operating procedure, 
habit pattern of any Christian life. We should always be watchful. And uh, it has the idea of becoming something that you weren't already. So it's indicating the fact that they're not watchful. They're, there's n- they're not alert at all to what, what the, what's going on in their own spiritual life. So they need to become something they're not already. And what they are to become is watchful. This is the uh, Greek word Gregoria, where we get the uh, name Gregory is based on this. It means to wake up or to be uh, to awaken. And it's, a, it's the flip side of what we see in uh, Hebrews 5 with these sleepy, sluggish, lazy uh, believers that are being written to in that passage. They are to be watchful. Now, a dead person can't be watchful. So, but a temporally dead person, somebody using carnality, can be watchful. They need, they need to wake up. They need to become alert, which they aren't already, and they need to stay alert. So the idea there is that they are to uh, wake up, put their focus on the right priorities, and to be alert and watchful uh, about their spiritual life, to pay attention to what's going on around, not just drift lazily through their spiritual life, but to realize what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following, that we are involved in a spiritual warfare. We are constantly engaged in a battle. And there are three enemies in that battle. The first enemy is internal. And this is the traitor within. This is the sin nature. And that sin nature is constantly pumping out temptation and uh, uh, to get us to operate independently of the grace, the provision, of power of God. So we have an internal enemy of the sin nature, and that sin nature is allied with an external enemy called the world system or the cosmic system. And the world system is simply the uh, the uh, uh, the uh, total collection of all of the thoughts and values and of a local culture, whatever that may be, that is based on principles that are antagonistic to or independent from the Word of God. And so the world system often presents rationales and justifications and truisms that sound good but are in contradiction to the Word of God. In fact, one of the greatest dangers that I find that faces much of Christianity down through the ages is what I would refer to as popular folk Christianity. Popular folk Christianity, statements like cleanliness is next to godliness, and some people try to spend a lot of time trying to find that in their Bible. And um, uh, God helps those who help themselves. Statements like that. People have all kinds of ideas and notions that they've picked up from somebody that such and such is in the Bible. And it's not. The Bible doesn't teach anything like that. And they even have some biblical statements like loving your neighbor, but their interpretation of that is completely off base. That's spoke religion. And you find that in most churches. I mean, you can go to most Episcopal churches and Methodist churches and Roman Catholic churches. I'm going to pick on everybody. Uh, Presbyterian churches, holiness churches. And they all have all these ideas that they think are in the Bible. And I remember in my first church... And we had lots of problems with folks who were into just just what I'd call folk religion, folk Christianity, popular views. 
And we were using a Bible study tool in one of the classes that was put out by the navigators. And one of the requirements was that everybody needed to read their Bible. And so we got everybody reading their Bible. Everybody was on a read the Bible, through, through the Bible in a year uh, schedule. And people who had been in that church for 30, 40, 50 years under a variety of, you know, three or four different solid Bible teachers had never read their Bible through. Never read their Bible. If you've been a Christian three years and you've never read your Bible, don't do it now. Keep a poker face, but you ought to be hanging your head in shame because you don't know God's Word. You don't even know who's who. You don't know uh, Mephibosheth from Meher Shalal Hashbaz. I mean... How do you know what the preacher is even talking about? You've never read the Bible. You don't know whether Adam came before Moses or, or whatever. You know, and somebody's going to come up to you one day and say, how many animals did Moses take on the ark? And you're going to say, hmm, three. Well, see, Moses didn't take anybody on the ark. He, it was Noah that took animals on the ark. See, you need to know your Bible. And I had one older gentleman in that congregation who was a chairman of the deacons, uh, Dub Warren, and Dub has since gone to be with the Lord, and he, it was like this guy woke up spiritually and caught on fire. It was just amazing. And that happened with a number of different people in the congregation. And I remember one day sitting down with him, and he had retired by then. He was in his um, probably middle to late 60s. And so every morning he and his wife would sit down together by the radio, and they would uh, read their Bible together, and then they would listen to somebody on the radio. And after about doing this for about three or four months, he said, Pastor, there was a lot of stuff I thought was in the Bible that's not there. And there's a lot of really good stuff in the Bible that, that I didn't know was there. It was amazing how that transformed him. It wasn't just a fact that this, and this man had been exposed to a certain amount of doctrinal teaching over the years as well, but he just didn't know his Bible. And that's part of what it means to be to be watchful is we need to be aware that we are in a battle. We're in a spiritual battle. We're fighting the sin nature inside of us, the world system outside of us, and then above and beyond all of that, the mastermind of, uh, of the plan against God is, of course, Satan, the accuser, the adversary, the enemy of the saints, who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We have to be watchful. And remain watchful. We can't go lax and uh, start sleeping at our sentry posts, which is virtually what had happened in Sardis because they didn't keep watch. And, and on two different occasions, they were completely overwhelmed and defeated by enemy forces. So we are to be watchful. And next we are to, it says, to strengthen the things. Uh, it says, literally, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die or about to die. New King James says, which are, are ready to die. But the majority text says something completely different. This is what we call a textual problem. You, these things don't affect major doctrine, but especially in the book of Revelation, it, get, get, it, it will screw up my whole schedule when I think, okay, I can make it through the next three verses in about eight or ten hours of study, and all of a sudden I have to spend eight or ten hours just cranking through a textual problem. Uh, there are two different words that are used here. The Greek word, there we have them. The top one is the one that is in uh, the older manuscripts, a number of other manuscripts. It's sterison, and 
the other word that is in a majority, not, not even a majority of the majority text, so there's a real division there, is teresan. See how similar they look? It, 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 except for that initial sigma, the S at the beginning of the word, uh, that's the only basic difference between the two words. So they're both aorist active imperatives. The first word, teresan, means to stand fast, to set fast, to fix firmly, to establish something. Establishing something means to make a certain condition uh, permanent, to cause something to grow. You would establish a, uh, a garden. You could establish a tree. Uh, this, you could set a flower in the, in the ground. So it's, it's related to putting something in a place where later growth can occur. It has to do with bringing stability to that which is unstable, to make something firm or stable. The other word, tereso, from the Greek word tereo, means to keep or to guard or to protect things that are in, under attack or in danger. So you can see that either word works within this context, and either word presents a, uh, uh, a very similar sense, but there is a difference. Another word is the second word that's used in the context is also different from one version to another. One says, strengthen the things which are about to die. The other says, keep the things which are about to be thrown away. Well, after I get th- have gotten through with my study, I think that the first option is probably the best option. We're to strengthen. That's the challenge. Is strengthen what remains because they're about to to die just to go into non-existence. There's a regression that occurs in the spiritual life, and you you can reach a certain level of maturity, but then as you reverse course and backslide, you can lose the ground you've gained. You lose even the doctrine that you've learned. Uh, You begin to forget about these principles and how to apply them. We see the same principle over in Hebrews chapter 5, that they are now in a position where they should be eating meat, being able to handle more advanced doctrines in the Scripture, but because of uh, spiritual reversion, they are unable to handle those things. And so now they have to go back to eat meat. And that's the condition that uh, the Lord is pointing out of the Sardis church. Be watchful and strengthen, establish, stabilize the things which remain. Now the question that we have to answer here is, how do you stabilize that which remains? How, to, how do you go about establishing your Christian life or even re-establishing your Christian life? Because there's a threat here. These things are in jeopardy. Your spiritual life is in jeopardy if you continue in carnality. Now, he goes on to explain this in the next two verses. We'll have to get into the mechanics next week in the third verse. But he says, Strengthen, establish the things that remain that are about to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Now, one other point I want to make is that, see, even though they have reverse course, even though they're falling apart spiritually, even though they're in carnality, even though they, instead of being spiritually mature, they're spiritually immature, there's hope. There's an opportunity to reverse course. No matter what you've done in your, your life, no matter how you failed, no matter what sins you've committed, no matter how you've shocked yourself, 
And we've all done that at times. We've committed sins and we just say, well, I hope nobody finds out about it and I really wish the Lord didn't know about that. But somehow His grace covers it all. And no matter how long that period of time lasts, certainly there's damage, certainly, certainly there, uh, there's loss of rewards, certainly there's, there's things that you have to surmount now that are more difficult than if you hadn't gone through that. But there's always hope. There's always recovery. First John 1 John 1.9 gives us the starting point for recovery. It doesn't mean that just because you confess your sins that you've recovered. Now you have to go through the recovery process, which means learning to all over again, to walk by means of the Spirit, to abide in Christ, to take in the Word of God, to apply the Word of God, to reestablish those spiritual disciplines that are necessary for advanced in the spiritual life. So we are to be watchful, establish, stabilize that which remains. Why? So you can go forward. Uh, for, he says, in explanation, I have not found your works to be perfect before God. What he is saying here is, I have not found. It's a perfect tense of herisco, meaning to find or discover something. Perfect tense means this is a, emphasizing a completed action. Some level of evaluation has been completed at this point, and what he is saying is, at this point, as a result of the evaluation I've done already, the present result of this is failure. You're getting an F minus for your progress in the spiritual life right now. I have not found, as a result of a previous evaluation that's completed, your works perfect. And the word there for works is just the basic word we found earlier in verse 1, ergon, meaning your production, whatever it is. Uh, some of the production is human good, some production is divine good, some production is morality and the power of the flesh, some production is, is, uh, is gold, silver, precious stones. But what he is saying here, I have not found your works, that is your production, complete. And he uses the Greek verb plerao here, meaning to make full, to make, to fill, to bring to completion. And it is used uh, paraphrastically here to complete the thought, I have not found uh, complete your works before God. So there is much left that you need to do in your spiritual life. And plerao is used in some passages almost as a parallel to uh, teleo, which is another word that we find for completion or uh, maturity. And so what he is saying is that I have not found your works complete. There's a lot left to do. You have a lot of growth left, and you need to pursue that. That needs to be your priority. Therefore, he comes to a conclusion in verse 3. Remember how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Now I'm going to give you just a brief overview of this because we have to answer some questions like this. Remember how you have received and heard. And those verbs indicate, first of all, how you received Christ as Savior. By faith alone and Christ alone. Grace. You have to come back to a grace-oriented position. 
Remember how you received the word that you learned originally, not just the reception of salvation, but also receiving the word. That's the idea that's linked with the next verb there of hearing. And remember, as I pointed out from James, hearing is never viewed in the scripture as the simple process of listening to the teaching of the word of God. It, it, it includes within its idea that of application of, of doing of not just listening, but also applying what you hear. So he's calling them back to what they did earlier when they were advancing spiritually. Remember the principles that you implemented earlier in your life, how you received the Word, how you were taught the Word, and what you heard. And then he says, hold fast to these things and repent. That's the key. It's changing your mind. It's not talking about emotion. It's not talking about... Uh, remorse. There's a Greek word metamelomai that has that idea of just feeling overwhelmed with guilt and remorse and sorrow because we know we've blown it. I mean, you know how it was when you were a kid. You'd disappoint your parents and you'd get uh, disciplined or spanked if you had parents who were uh, oriented to divine viewpoint. And, uh, and you felt bad. But you felt more bad because you were caught than because of what you did. And so there was no real desire to change your behavior other than you weren't going to get caught the next time. And that was where you were going to emphasize. Uh, I used to have a, uh, used to know a military commander that says it's not wrong until you get caught. That's, that's how many of us operate. It's not really wrong until we get caught. Well, there has to be a change of thinking, not just remorse over uh, getting caught, discipline, the consequences, but a change of thinking, an overhaul of our mental frame of reference that comes from doctrine. It start, Repentance starts with confession of sin. That's just our point of recovery, but recovery just gets us pointed in another direction. And then we have to stay pointed in that direction. What happens with a lot of Christians who understand the principle of 1 John 1, 9 is they, they think that's all there is to it. And so they confess their sin, and now they're pointed toward God, and half a second later they sin, and then they confess their sin, they're pointed toward God. You know, they don't stay that way, and before long they're, they're dizzy, and they fall down, and they fail in their Christian life. I thought it was so amusing this last week when I was in Connecticut, I went to see Jay Chapel. Jay is just a great, godly pastor at North Stone Bible Church, been teaching doctrine, teaching the Word up there now for 40 years, went up there as a director with the Christian Servicemen's Bureau back in the early 60s. Jack Keith knew him, some others who were here associated with us. Scotty Jones knew him uh, year, years ago when he was working there, and he established a church in the late 70s in North Stonington Bible Church. And Jay was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma about five months ago, and the reports for a while there were very discouraging, and he was extremely weak and in so much pain that the morphine didn't even cut it. And now he's, I, I called him when I went up there to go over and visit with him a little bit, and I called him, and his voice was strong, and he, he's down to only 10 milligrams of Oxycontin a day, and, and he's walking around a little bit unstable, but walking around. In fact, he came out to uh, Bible class on Thursday night, and he's doing great. But when I talked to him, I said, Well, Jay, our church, you're on the prayer list at our church. People are praying for you. 
he said, well, I really appreciate people all over the country. I said, I've been surprised how many people around the country are praying for me. I hear from this church. I hear from that church. I hear from all kinds of people who are praying for me. But what really matters is the churches where they understand you have to be in fellowship to pray. Those are the prayers I want. (laughs) If we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. So there's a lot of folks who don't grasp that principle. But the Lord has been gracious. And Jay seems to be uh, well on the road to recovery. has two more of five chemotherapy sessions to go through, but unfortunately they haven't been able to discover the source of his lymphoma. They don't know where, where it's originated from. It's gotten into his uh, bone marrow, but he's, he's doing well, so we just need to keep praying for him and praying for uh, that congregation up there. There's always recovery. Recovery procedure is laid out here in verse 3, and it's a refocus on how we originally learned and accepted Christ as our Savior, how we originally learned doctrine, received doctrine, and underwent those principles, and understanding at the root the spiritual dynamic that is crucial, that supernatural means of growth, which is walking according to the Spirit. And we're going to look at that next time. I love it when this happens. All three classes are coming together on the same kinds of issues. So I haven't figured out how I'm going to teach that so we're all not getting the same thing every night. But remember, different people listen to different series at different times. So we're going to get a lot of reinforcement and uh, come at it from different perspectives over the next week. But there's such misunderstanding about the uh, role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life today that we need to go into Romans 8 and Galatians 5 and tear these passages apart and understand what they mean, what they don't mean. That's what I taught when I was in Connecticut, was on the leading of the Holy Spirit and divine guidance, what's true and what's not true. So we're going to get elements of that here and there throughout the next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for your love for us, for the fact that you have given everything to us and provided everything to us and including the indwelling Holy Spirit, His filling ministry, that it is through His ministry and a dependent walk upon His ministry that we advance and grow in the spiritual life. But above all, we thank You for our salvation. And we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died for you. When He was on the cross, He had you in mind. He paid the penalty for your sins, every sin, past, present, and future. In in the omniscience of God the Father, he knew every single sin you would commit. Nothing remained hidden. And so he poured out every one of those sins on Jesus Christ. And the scripture says that by simply believing in him, by trusting in him, you have eternal life. When you receive that free gift of eternal life, it can never be taken from you. You have eternal life, not possible eternal life and you will be saved forever all that is necessary is for you to trust in Christ to believe what the scripture says about him that he died for you this is your opportunity to make that decision the instant you put your faith and trust in Christ God the Father and his omniscience knows the orientation of your heart what you are trusting in for salvation and at that instant he declares you righteous and he gives you a new life and eternal life that can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you challenge each of us with the principles we studied today, 
some of us need to be reminded to be watchful, to be on guard in our own Christian life, and to remember uh, where we've come from and what we've received and what we've heard and to go back to a place where your word is a priority in our life. Others of us need just to be encouraged to move forward, to advance, to go, go forward in our Christian life. We pray that the Holy Spirit would drive these principles deeply into our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.